From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. State lawmakers have less than two weeks to figure out a lot of big issues, from property taxes to fentanyl. We'll check in with our public affairs team to find out what they're up against. Then, Colorado has among the highest rates of mental illness in the nation, but one of the lowest rates when it comes to access to care. And much of that care is often low quality. We'll talk about the reasons. Then, a DACA recipient reads his family's story about traveling to the U.S. and then comforting his little sister who fears he'll be deported. I promise, whatever happens, we'll always be together. Always. I'll be there to put Band-Aids on your scraped knees. I'll be there to help you with your school projects. Your membership does more than fund the news and music you rely on. It helps build a statewide community through shared experiences. Your gift means culture can be explored. It means stories can be told from the Western Slope, the Eastern Plains, and from up and down the Front Range. CPR can serve your community and other communities across Colorado because of your support. Thank you. Not a member yet? Join now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Fentanyl, property taxes, election security, and flavored tobacco. These are just a handful of the many, many issues still pending in the state legislature. But lawmakers have less than two weeks to go to wrap up their work for the year. Joining me to talk about what's at stake and how these last few days might go are CPR's State House team, Andrew Kenny and Benta Berkland. And welcome to you both. Hello. Yeah, thanks for having us. Let's start with those big policies that are still in the works. Andy, what are the main things you're following right now? Just last night, I pulled some data from this service called Colorado Capital Watch, and they said there are 400 bills that are technically still alive, haven't been killed or passed, and there's only 13 days left. So there's lots we could pay attention to, but one of the biggest moving pieces hasn't even been introduced yet as a bill as far as I know, and it's a plan to slow the growth of property taxes, which is something that's become a concern because of how people's home values and land values have been growing. So they're trying to come to this deal that would allow taxpayers to keep about $700 million collectively of taxes that they would have otherwise owed over the next couple of years. Um, You know, your taxes will most likely still go up despite that. And this one's interesting just because it's the result of tons of political maneuvering. There's like outside groups threatening to run ballot measures to do similar things. And meanwhile, you know, maybe county governments and some of the other local governments are not too happy with the idea of cutting into their potential tax revenues. Uh, So that'll be quite a sprint to the finish. They also have to finish on a totally different topic, the fentanyl bill, which touches on everything from how do you treat opiate addictions to providing overdose reversal drugs, but most of the debate around that one is still focused on this question of how do you penalize people who are caught possessing drugs. Benta, what else? What are you keeping your eyes on? 
Another significant bill that's still in the works would try to prevent insider threats to Colorado's election system. And so this bill is in response to the security breach that occurred in Mesa County, and it would require 24-7 video surveillance of election equipment, more training for election officials and workers, harsher penalties uh, for sharing information, internal information, passwords and that type of thing about voting machines. It would also restrict who can be near election equipment, and it would require key card access. We've been reporting a lot on efforts by some lawmakers to ban flavored tobacco and nicotine products. Where does that stand now? So that bill has cleared two Democratic-controlled committees. It's now awaiting a hearing in the House Appropriations Committee. I don't think, though, that it will get another vote. While the health community agrees that these flavors like cotton candy and bubblegum are enticing young people and, you know, getting them hooked on vaping, Democrats are divided on it. Uh, Governor Jared Polis and some other Democrats and Republicans say this should be a personal choice. Um, He doesn't support the bill. So even though the bill is not dead yet, it, you know, because it hasn't been voted down, I think it will die on the calendar. Hmm. Andy, you have a story today about a showdown between some lawmakers mm-hmm. and the Polis administration. It's over whether the state should set up an office of missing and murdered indigenous relatives to address crimes against Native Americans. Walk us through that dispute. Yeah, this is one of those topics where everybody seems to agree on the need to do something. Uh, indigenous people are the victims of violent crime at really disproportionately high rates. And this bill aims to provide some state resources to you know, coordinate investigations across jurisdictions and look at some of the deeper reasons for these killings and disappearances. The Polis administration, though, says they don't support the specific approach that's being proposed, which is to create this new office with a capital O. And instead, they want to potentially hire some, you know, they, they want to do it a different way that doesn't require so much change to the structure of the Department of Public Safety. They want to hire some CBI agents and then put together a mostly volunteer task force to look at the issues. Um, you know, it may sound like it's a debate over how the bureaucracy should be set up, but the sponsors and some of the indigenous community members they're working with say that that's not going to work. They need this dedicated office. They need people dedicated to these deep issues in the way that was originally proposed. So they're saying they're going to try to pass the bill and basically dare the governor to veto it if he doesn't like it. And you don't always see, you don't very often see that kind of uh, challenge once the governor said he doesn't like an idea. So things are getting down to the wire in the Capitol. What's it like there right now with just so many bills still being considered? Things move fast. They are in the stage of mass bill handling. There'll be dozens of bills going through the chambers on any given morning. Um, You've also seen some requests by Republicans to have bills read at length, which means they have a computer start reading out the full language of the bill. And uh, that's a way to kind of slow things down and delay getting votes. It I don't think it's really disrupted the flow of things yet. But again, 13 days to go. So a lot could still happen. So this seems like an odd rule to me that the law forces them to stop what they're doing and then read whole bills out loud if a lawmaker asks them to. That's right. The the background on this is the state constitution allows this. And that goes from, you know, when some lawmakers couldn't read and that was something in the state constitution. So you can ask for the bill to be read at length. And 
it is uh, one of the tools the minority party, in, the, in this case Republicans, can show their displeasure with the majority and with legislation and really slow down work and run down the clock at the end of session. And the Colorado Supreme Court upheld this practice just a few years ago and said that these bill readings, readings at length, must be legible. So it can't be done using like a bank of computers at super speed, which someone did try to do in the past, which mm-hmm. led to the lawsuits. But so this is a, a popular delay tactic for some members of the minority party. So the goal is delay? Yeah, it's to gain to gain leverage because Democrats, the one thing they really need, they have power. What they need is time to finish their agenda. Republicans, the main thing they can do is take up time. And so one thing Democrats can, can one thing that can happen is Democrats will try to convince Republicans to not take up that precious resource of time. And they can do that by making compromises, and then maybe Republicans will agree not to take up time. I I would say at this point, though, Democratic leaders are telling us in both chambers that they are still optimistic that Democrats will get everything they done, you know, that they hope to get done. I talked with Senate Majority Leader Dominic Moreno about it. Uh, He said he's not worried yet. The closer we get to the end date of session, the more likely that becomes where possibly, you know, things can get stalled and then things genuinely become in jeopardy. But I I, I would say we're working really collaboratively with our colleagues in the minority, um, and hopefully it doesn't come to that. Benta, as you look back on the session so far, how does it compare to past years? It's an election year, and even though there's always a lot of legislation, I would say Democrats who control both chambers haven't tackled as many huge lightning rod type policies as some other sessions. Among the more controversial things they have done, Democrats did pass and the governor already signed the Reproductive Health Equity Act, and that is to enshrine the right to abortion access into state law. And that's if the U.S. Supreme Court strikes down these federal protections for abortion. Right. The bill doesn't change anything practically on the ground for abortion in Colorado right now. Uh, It could actually be overturned by a future legislature if Republicans come back to power. But Backer said it was important that the state explicitly allow the procedure, put it into state law, because they want to codify this right, not just for Coloradans, but for women throughout the region as more states pass restrictive laws and bans. Finally, Andy, a week ago, we learned a state lawmaker had been arrested on suspicion of a DUI. That's Democratic Representative Matt Gray of Broomfield. Where does that stand? Well, it's still it's still a charge. There's been no admission of guilt from Gray, but um, he was taken to the Broomfield Detention Center. Uh, He is withdrawn from his run for reelection. And the Democratic Party will now appoint a nominee to run in his place. And the legal case is a little bit complicated because Gray used to work as a prosecutor in the district that covers Broomfield. So the DA for Broomfield has said he'll recuse himself and let another DA in Jefferson County handle any potential criminal or whatever kind of case that comes out of this. Um, In the meantime, Gray has been working, attending the session remotely, which is allowed under the rules they created for the pandemic. You can video in. But he hasn't done a lot more than cast votes. You haven't seen him debating, and he hasn't made any public statement about his arrest. Thank you, Andy and Benta. Thank you. Thanks so much. CPR's Capitol reporters, Andrew Kenny and Benta Berkland, we've been talking about how things are wrapping up in the final days of the legislative session. Lawmakers have to adjourn by May 11th. When we come back, investigating the state of mental health care in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
CPR is growing and evolving to better serve a growing and evolving audience in Colorado. And we're looking for new members of our team with job openings now for a fundraising manager and Salesforce administrator. It takes a committed team with roles on and off the air to make Colorado Public Radio, and your skill set and experience may be just what we're looking for. See all open job opportunities and what working at CPR is like at CPR.org careers. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Colorado has among the highest rates of mental illness in the nation and one of the lowest rates when it comes to access to care. CPR joined news organizations across the state to investigate community mental health centers. These taxpayer-funded funded centers have a near monopoly on care, and reporters found the care they offer is often subpar. Susan Green broke the original story. She's an investigative reporter for CoLab, which coordinated the coverage. And Susan, and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Andrea. Those first stories you reported about the mental health system in Colorado, what did you find? We found um, that, again, we were focusing on these 17 community mental health centers that are paid more than $437 million a year in tax dollars to serve at the core of the safety net. And we're talking about indigent people, people on Medicaid, and anyone um, in crisis in Colorado. So we found that um, the center, the state has been giving these centers non-compete contracts and privileged rate status for nearly 60 years without any meaningful oversight, um, that, that the system is turning away some of the most vulnerable and at-risk Coloradans um, in crisis with no recourse from state officials, that the centers collectively have treated fewer clients during the pandemic than before it, despite what we all know are, are skyrocketing mental health needs, that the state's payment system inadvertently created um, this financial incentive for centers to take on fewer ill people and charge higher costs while also protecting them from competition, um, that the centers have been charging taxpayers up to 17 times more than independent Medicaid providers for the same service, but with little transparency about the expenses those rates are based on, um, that several of the centers, including those in communities with big immigrant populations, have no Spanish-speaking care providers, and that some centers have been paid for programs they've just not provided um, with no pushback from the state agency's funding or charged with regulating them. Colorado has a unique system for how it approaches taxpayer-funded mental health care. Can you briefly describe that? Yeah, um, this system is based on these community mental health centers, right? And so, again, they have a lock um, on these contracts, and they have for 60 years. Um, they are supposed to provide things like crisis care when someone is in, is in crisis. They're supposed to provide psychiatric care. And I, I want to be clear, I'm, this series does not talk about the worried well, um, which is sort of those of us who have maybe depression or anxiety. Um, I'm really talking about the safety net, the people who are really in crisis. And so um, this this system is supposed to treat all of them. Nobody, I mean, it is the safety net. It's supposed to catch people from falling through the cracks. And it's based on these nonprofits that are not um, transparent at all. And so even though they get most of their money, and we're talking almost a half a billion dollars a year from taxpayers, um, there's really no way for the public or watchdogs or the media to look at, at 
that funding and how they're spending it. How did these centers react when you started asking questions and doing your reporting? <laughs> Such a good question. I guess um, one of my recent um, accusations is um, I'm I'm trying to kill people um, by dissuading them from getting care at these community mental health centers. That's what they said. Yeah, um, or that I w- our reporting and and my colleagues' reporting um, will result in people not getting care and um, not seeking care and therefore dying. Um, what we have found um, with some of our partners is that people are are getting misprescribed medications um, and dying. And and what what we have found has prompted um, many reform efforts at the legislature to improve the system. We are after improving the system. Um, we're not after tearing it down. And, and I want to say... Um, there is this sort of like messiah complex going on among um, some of these heads of these community mental health centers who've been running them for 40 years. Um, and, you know, one in Denver, Carl Clark is making $819,000 a year um, to run an organization that is turning away um, uh, clients, people in crisis, when they're at the lowest point in their lives. So, um our goal here is to really get the public to understand this complicated system. What prompted you to first look into this? I mean, I've lived here for, I think, t- 25 years-ish, and I've always wondered why, as you said at the top of the um, segment, Colorado is so high for suicides and so low for access to care. I was doing a story in Rangeley in, in far northwest Colorado a couple of years ago about um a paranoid, a man with paranoid schizophrenia who ended up um, sort of drawing police on a chase, and they killed him. And the irony in that in that situation was he was new to the town, and he had um, untreated, as I said, paranoid schizophrenia. And the only person in the, in the town who really knew that about him was um, ultimately the policeman who shot him after this chase. And um, it was in his apartment a couple days earlier. When he said to that um, police lieutenant, shoot me now, you know, he was basically saying he was Jesus, shoot me now, I'll come back to life. And that lieutenant called Mind Springs Health, which is the community mental health center in that part of the state, 10 counties, including Rio Blanco County. He called and asked um, Mind Springs, should I put this man on a mental health hold, an involuntary mental health hold? And Mind Springs said, nah, nah. And um, it was a very quick, I think, matter of seconds call. And what I found so amazing was that Bind Springs had the contract to provide crisis care in that area, and they didn't send him out. And I, I, this could have been prevented, and so many of these situations could be prevented if, in fact, Mind Springs or whoever the um, community mental health center is in whatever area actually does its job. And... Um, you know, that's what prompted it. And this man is a perfect example of someone who needed help. How has the mental health community reacted? Well, I, I the private providers and especially, um, you know, the, the kind of independent people um, who I give a lot of credit for accept Medicaid because it really doesn't pay that much. They get paid significantly less per client than these centers are thrilled about this because um, – 
you know, they know that there needs to be competition. They they know that there are many, many people in communities that have had it with their community mental health centers who, who have been fired from care from their community mental health centers. So advocates, people with lived experience, independent providers, county commissioners, um, you know, local health departments are thrilled about it. It's the community mental health centers and their powerful lobby that wants to um, continue their sort of primacy and um, lack of competition that are upset about it. Just in the last minute we have, there are a bunch of efforts at the state capitol to reform the mental health care system. Will they make a difference? I think so. Um, you know, they have yet to pass through the Senate. Um, they'll make some difference in terms of transparency and accountability. The problem is with this system, it's been bifurcated into two agencies. Um, the uh, Department of, of Human Services and the Department of Healthcare Policy and Finance, which funds it through Medicaid. And so as long as, even after these reforms, that bifurcation will still happen. And I do think we have to pay a lot of attention into this dynamic at the state, which is like, ask your mother, ask your father. No one has real accountability and there's nowhere where the buck totally stops. Susan, thanks so much. Thank you, Andrea. Susan Green is an investigative reporter for CoLab. CPR's investigative reporter, Ben Marcus, spent several months looking at these centers and how they gained power in Colorado. He found that early on, the state tried to reform the system and ran into powerful lobbying. It started when a gunman entered a theater in Aurora. 315 and 314 for a shooting at Century Theaters, 14300 East Alameda Avenue. They're saying somebody's shooting in the auditorium. That was almost 10 years ago now. 12 people were shot and killed at the midnight premiere of the latest Batman movie. Dozens more were injured. But this is the story of what happened afterwards. An attempt to help people in mental health crisis that ended in court battles, ruined careers, and secret settlements, the details of which have never been fully reported. The Aurora Theater shooting demanded action from lawmakers. It was revealed early on that the gunman had sought psychiatric help, so the issue of mental health became an immediate focus for Colorado's governor at the time, John Hickenlooper. We really have a, a duty after tragedies to... You know, look at what we do and how we act, how we help each other. Hickenlooper called on his Department of Human Services for ideas. And within months of the shooting, he had a plan, which he announced at a press conference. We believe these policies will reduce the probability of, of bad things happening to good people. Tens of millions in state money would go to create a mental health crisis system, a toll-free hotline, mobile services, walk-in clinics. Really, they wanted to upend the status quo of mental health, according to Reggie Bika, Hickenlooper's head of human services. If you keep putting more money into that system, you're likely to get more of the same result. The details of the plan were the brainchild of a human services staffer named Chris Habgood, an expert on behavioral health. When Hickenlooper asked for ideas after the shooting, Habgood was ready. He said, well, how about this? We've got a report handy right now that the biggest gap in our system is the crisis delivery. Even before the Aurora shooting, Habgood had spent two years writing this report. And now, with the governor's backing, it would become law. Change of this magnitude can be so hard to come by in government, and this should have been the pinnacle of Habgood's career. Instead... That was the most difficult, probably, time in my career I've ever had. He had helped create a system that he believed would help people in mental health crisis and was innovative. And then all of a sudden it comes to a crashing halt, 
because somebody there's winners and losers and the losers didn't like losing and they were going to make sure that they were not the losers. What happened next was described as unprecedented by the state workers involved. CPR News assembled the timeline based on dozens of hours of court testimony, interviews, and records requests. Once the legislature approved the money in 2013, Habgood assembled a committee that wrote up a request for proposals. This was huge news in the mental health community, and it caught the attention of a guy named David Covington, who is running emergency mental health clinics in Arizona. This was, I mean, this was a... A national story. Covington told a Denver District Court judge in 2014 that Hickenlooper and his team clearly wanted to shake up emergency mental health. They were seeking innovation. They wanted community collaboration in a way that they hadn't seen before. And uh, I think that was what really attracted us to, to this opportunity. Covington had been waiting for an opportunity like this. He quit his job and assembled the most innovative mental health providers from across the country. We thought this is where the country is going. This is what people will be looking at. So we wanted to bring the A-team to that. Uh, again, I have a lot of relationships nationally, and I said, who are the best? So he brings them together and submits his proposal. The state's longtime existing mental health centers band together to submit their own proposal. That's Mental Health Center of Denver, Mind Springs, and the Jefferson Center, among others. Habgood and his team thoroughly review the proposals, and they decide on Covington, the upstart from out of state. In internal documents, they find that he has by far the best proposal. Covington immediately gets to work. Starting up operations, I was looking at houses to move here looking at schools, looking, beginning to craft out how we would engage employees. But within weeks, he received distressing news. Covington was told that the bid was under investigation. Then he was told it would all be re-bid. Even worse, copies of Covington's innovative proposal were given to his competitors. In court, it was later found that the state's existing mental health centers had put pressure on the governor's office, the legislature, and state agencies. That, in turn, led the Department of Human Services to quickly invalidate Covington's proposal based on what the court deemed was a flimsy one-page justification. It just defies reason, and it does suggest a uh, manufactured reason uh, to cancel, trumped-up reason, whatever you want to call it. He granted a preliminary injunction, halting the state's program from going out to bid again. Hickenlooper's signature response to a mass shooting was at an impasse. But after winning the bid and winning his lawsuit, Covington just went away. CPR News obtained records indicating that the losing bidders, the state's mental health centers, they cut a deal with him to leave Colorado. The centers eventually won the contract for crisis services, neutralizing a threat to their business. The centers and their trade organization would not grant an interview, saying it would break the terms of the deal. Covington also wouldn't comment. Hickenlooper's top staffers, including the then head of the Department of Human Services, Reggie Bika, say they don't really know what happened. We never were notified of what the terms were. All we know is that the, the lawsuit's going away. Didn't you have questions as to what? Absolutely. Um, but we had no right to find out what the, um, what the settlement was. While true, it's still a highly unusual and secretive conclusion for what was supposed to be the governor's big response to a horrific mass shooting. 
Chris Habgood, the state employee who wrote the report that found the need for crisis services and helped to pick Covington, would later leave state government. And he wants to be clear about the state's existing mental health centers. They do great work. They really do. They do serve people really well. And I want to be very clear on that. Is And it's not just because I had relationships with them. There are people who are being served. There are times where they don't always do good. So why revisit all this ancient history? Because eight years later, the centers that ran a competitor out of Colorado are under scrutiny again. The legislature is considering yet another overhaul of mental health in Colorado. And while the state has the power to upend the virtual monopoly the centers hold on mental health, the past suggests it won't be easy. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. And Ben is with us in the studio. Hi, Ben. Hey, Andrea. How are you doing? I am fine. What was the aftermath of all of these events? So uh, the existing mental health centers get the contract for crisis services. Four years go by where they're uh, providing those services, and the state decides it wants to put all of this out to bid again. Uh, And this time, the mental health centers themselves sue the state of Colorado and Denver District Court, saying putting it out to bid is totally unnecessary. Um, And this time it was their trade organization, uh, the Colorado Behavioral Health Care Council, that initiated that lawsuit. And I understand that there was some unflattering testimony there. Yeah. So an assistant county manager from Summit County takes the stand and she testifies that she sees this map one day and it says, we have mobile mental health crisis services in Summit County. And she's like, no, we don't. Uh, She knew that they didn't. And so the lawyer for CBHC asked him, well, how do you know that? And she says, well, I know that because the community has called for mobile services. This is when somebody could come out to your home and provide services where you live or in your community rather than you having to go to a clinic or an emergency room. And basically the community was told it doesn't exist. And so this was a key part of a contract that they had worked so hard for and they weren't even providing that. So anyway, the case was thrown out by the judge. The judge says, look, the state wants to put mental health services out to bid. They can do that. But from my conversations with folks at the Department of Human Services, they felt like this was part of the intimidation tactics of the existing community mental health centers, that if you try as a state to diversify the provider base and move away from them, that they are going to fight you whether they win or not in court. And so we're back at the legislature again this year. Um, There are attempts to reform the system, make it more transparent. And that's why we have taken the time to kind of dig into the past and see how these attempts went wrong before. Thanks so much, Ben, and thanks for your reporting. Thank you. That's CPR's Ben Marcus. You can read his investigative reporting at CPR.org. You'll also find the CoLab stories about mental health services in the state. When we come back, a DACA recipient in his own words as he tries to ease the fears of his little sister. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. As a teenager struggling with addiction, Morgan Sinclair found help through a program at his Denver high school to stay sober and graduate. Now he's gone back to help others. Hey, Being 15 and in recovery, high school is like a horrible place to be. So being able to like make people feel comfortable with their journey in recovery, it's super cool. Morgan's story is the latest episode of Back From Broken, everywhere you listen. With support from Lift the Label, 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Ten years ago this June, the U.S. government created a new program called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA. It gave children brought to the U.S. from other countries temporary protection from deportation, and it made them eligible for college and jobs. Leading up to the anniversary, we're sharing monologues written by DACA recipients. They're part of a podcast series from Boulder-based Modus Theater. Today, Christian Solano Cordova. He tells the story of his efforts to protect his sister. She's an American citizen but fears their mother will be deported. He wrote the monologue in 2019 when Donald Trump was president. I was my sister's age, just 11 years old this year. I didn't have any worries. It's funny because my baby sister, the Nai, she's an American citizen, so it should be easier for her. But it's not. It's not right now. The people she loves the most, my mom, our other sister, Beba, and I, we're all undocumented. And when we're threatened, she is threatened. My baby sister, she's forced to bear the burden of attacks on immigrants under the current administration. I remember election night 2016, My mom and I were in complete shock, just trying to absorb what just had happened to the country, trying to strategize about how to handle certain possibilities. I remember frantically Googling what happens to a U.S. citizen child if an undocumented parent is deported. My dad died young, so I needed to assure myself that if my mom were deported, I could get custody of the Nai, who's only eight. Of course, what would happen if Our other sister, Beba, and I were also deported. My mom and I totally lost track of time during our election night panic, so when hours later I came downstairs, I was surprised to find my baby sister, and I, wide awake, sitting in a corner by herself, crying, red-faced with puffy eyes. My dad gone. I've always had to be the big brother, rather father figure, since my mom was always working. I helped the night with her homework, we read each other bedtime stories, play games. I try to answer those unanswerable types of kid questions, and I comfort her when she's scared. But I'm not used to trying to comfort her when, in reality, I needed so much comforting myself. Just remember tilting your chin, glistening with streams of tears toward me, looking into those deep brown eyes and trying my best to give her soothing answers to difficult questions and just repeating. Baby, don't cry. Don't cry. It's going to be okay, I promise. Listen, why would you be deported? Do you even know what that word means? You shouldn't have to. Listen to me. You are an American citizen. You will never be deported. You're right, I'm not a citizen, but I've got DACA. They can't deport me. I know mom doesn't, but mom is going to be okay. She's lived here for decades, and she's not going anywhere. Baby, don't cry. Please. I promise, whatever happens, we'll be together. Always. I'll be there to put band-aids on your scraped knees. I'll be there to help you with your school projects. And yes, we're going to finish reading Harry Potter together. And I'll be by your side when you need help applying for college. I'll be there for you when you fall in love for your first time, when your heart is broken. And I'll walk you down the aisle one day. It really doesn't matter where, as long as we're together. And yes, of course, the puppy's coming with us if we go. 
We'll lose part of this family too, I'll have you know. Yeah, that's a dimply smile I like to see. It's gonna be okay. At least that's what I told her. I did my best to offer what I wanted to hear, what I wanted to believe, both for her and our entire family. Because how do you talk to a child about being taken away from their parent or siblings without terrorizing them, without stripping them of their innocence? With each day of this administration, the increased deportations of parents like my mom, the attempts to end the DACA program that protects me and my sister Beba, and the willingness to end rules that limit how long children can be detained, even threats to strip children like the Nayi of their citizenship. With all the mounting threats against our family, it feels increasingly cruel to offer my little sister what amounts to be a fairy tale when she might need great strength to overcome great threats. So today, I offer you another story. And this story won't kiss it and make it all better, but I'm hoping it'll help us stay strong regardless of the challenges that we might face. I was three years old, and my sister Beba was just one when we crossed the border with my mom. We walked together with a group of people, maybe 10, 15, across the desert. We walked for hours and hours at night. And we were out in the middle of nowhere, following a dim silver light in the distance. Imagine we followed it, because it meant we were going the right way. Some shining city. We finally got to a raised road, lined with street lamps. But to avoid walking over the road at night and potentially being seen, we crossed through a drainage tunnel under the road. Mom had me walk through the tunnel in front of her. She crawled behind with my sister in her shawl. Beb and I were wearing those little kids' light-up shoes that everybody was going crazy over that year. Mom had saved up a lot of money to buy them. We were going to be seeing our dad after a year of him being in the U.S. on his own. So she wanted us to look our best. And the shoes were actually super helpful in the drainage tunnel to light the way for our mom and all the other people crawling through on their hands and knees. But of course, in the dead of night, they were a dead giveaway. We were finally able to see the moonlight at the end of the tunnel and catch a whiff of fresh air. The coyotes urgently requested that my mom take off my shoes. There's a border patrol car parked outside, he whispered. The drainage tunnel emptied out right next to a gas station where the border patrol car was parked. The officers were inside, we assumed, so we waited for a while, hoping they'd return and drive away. But nobody was coming out, and for some reason, the Goethe's grew impatient and abruptly told everybody to move. In the chaos, everybody scrambled, crawling behind tall grass on their hands and knees as the Goethe's gave us voiceless commands with their fingers on their lips and pointing to the ground but the ground was covered in cactus thorns and prickles, and I didn't have any shoes. And while everybody else crawled, my mom stood up, carrying both Beba and I in her arms, and she started walking. At first, I thought she was giving up, because we'd surely be seen everybody else was still crawling on the ground, but she stood up tall and walked with a defiant pep in her step as if she belonged right there where she stood. And that's when I realized she hadn't given up. She just had faith that walking quickly and quietly was her best strategy to protect us. 
She was resolved that somehow, somewhere, we would be okay and that we would find a home where a family could thrive. I've never forgotten the look on my mom's face as she walked down the street and out into the dark of an unknown country. That is when I first learned that the real meaning of courage is not to pretend to be immune from fear, but rather to calmly and steadily take action in spite of it. Our current president might caricature my little three-year-old self as a diseased, toddler, criminal, murderer, rapist, gang member in the making. He might try to scare people who don't know undocumented immigrants into thinking that a mother carrying her children to safety is nothing less than an invasion. Bebe and I, we grew up to be beloved by our friends and neighbors, strong members of our community. We both went to college, and I even became student body president at my university. I'm not part of some invading army fighting against America. But like you, I'm fighting for the American ideals I think we can live up to. You may want to take away my baby sister's right to citizenship, but I remain hopeful that maybe the Nye or some other young girl might one day be our president and help lead us to a future where we actually live up to our ideals, to truly have liberty and justice for all. But that reality is going to take a lot of hard work, and not just on my part, or just on the part of the immigrant community, but hard work on your part too. As Anne Frank once wrote in her famous diary, how wonderful it is that nobody need wait a single moment before starting to improve the world. Christian Solano Cordova, a DACA recipient, reading his monologue, The Meaning of Courage. He wrote it in 2019 when Donald Trump was president. The 10-year anniversary of DACA is June 15th. The monologue is part of the Undocu America project from Boulder-based Modus Theater. And the readings are compiled in a podcast. We'll put a link at cpr.org slash Colorado Matters. Each reading in the podcast is followed by music. For Solano Cordova's story, violinist Yo-Yo Ma chose the music. Then he teamed up with pianist Catherine Stott. They played Nana from Manuel de Falla's Seven Spanish Folk Songs. Aspen Mountain closed for the ski season last weekend, and as skiers took in one last run, there was something that appeared to be melting nearby. Not the snow, but a work of art. 
It was created to get skiers and boarders talking about climate change. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis takes us there. It's a sunny spring day at 11,200 feet. Folks jump off the gondola, excited to head down Aspen Mountain one last time. There's a woman in a bikini with skis strapped to her feet. People are taking selfies and pictures of the views. And there's something else catching people's attention. It's a sculpture called Melting Gondola, created by artist Chris Erickson. It's an old decommissioned gondola car, cut the bottom off at an angle, and then the melting portion is a foam coated with resin. The sculpture is framed by the stunning views of the Elk Mountains. As it leans on its side, the gondola car looks like ice cream melting in the hot sun. The puddle it sits in is red, the color Aspen Skiing Company uses for its branding. The effect was to try to simulate this color melting, literally dripping off of the aluminum car. Erickson says red is also a triggering color. It represents heat and emergency. The purpose of the sculpture is to draw attention to the impacts climate change is having on the ski industry and mountain communities. Erickson had to evacuate two Colorado mountain homes in the last few years because of wildfire. He also had to take down an art show because the gallery didn't have insurance. I deinstalled the show in the middle of the night because we didn't know if the town of Basalt was going to burn down. It was that, that sketchy. Erickson says he often feels helpless in the face of climate change. His art is one way he can speak up about the issue. Whatever it is, like just the conversation, I feel like is just important. And to not talk about it is just to be complicit. And I, I don't think that's an option. The gondola was inspired by Australian artist James Dive in a sculpture of a melted ice cream truck. The piece was commissioned by Aspen Skiing Company as part of their Art in Unexpected Places program. Auden Schendler is Senior Vice President of Sustainability. We take a ride in a functioning gondola car, and Schendler talks about the ways climate change is affecting the mountain. We've seen about three degrees Fahrenheit increase in temperature here since the resort opened. Since 1980, we've lost 30 days of frost. So winter's a month shorter. That's shocking. Schendler doesn't think there will be much left of the ski industry in 50 years. He says it sounds dismal, but he believes it's the reality of a warmer world. He thinks only some high-elevation resorts will survive. We might be one of those, but we're not celebrating because... Like all businesses, you depend on the health of the entire industry. So we need the low-elevation mom-and-pop resorts on the east and west coast. If they go away, those are our future skiers. He says Aspen and other large, multi-million-dollar corporations need to do whatever they can to limit warming as much as possible. The resort has been a leader on making internal changes and pushing for systemic ones. Schindler says people's love for skiing is a chance to get them involved in that. He says the melting gondola helps. You'll see the range of emotions, which is, wow, that's cool, to annoyance and criticism. All that is what you're trying to spark. Think about it not being there at all. Well, then there's no conversation. I've been skiing here you know, quite a bit this year, and my wife always asked, did you see the gondola yet? That's Victor Dalabetta with his friend Andrew Carl. They took a break from skiing to check out the sculpture. I said, I've looked everywhere for it. I said, finally, we, we were walking along. There it is. So I took a picture of it. I explained the message of the piece. Carl responded. I wasn't going to go with the man's inhumanity to man and all the rest, but yes, it does reek of that. <laughs> it reeks of that. <laughs> I asked if they've noticed any changes to the mountains over the years. Here's Della Betta. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I've been skiing 60, 
five years or something. And, yeah, I mean, my goodness, we'd still be skiing into May, probably. Sad. But we're lucky to have what we have, actually. Carl agrees the winters feel different, but he thinks the climate shifts are temporary. You know, you have your good years and your bad years, and I guess we're having a few more bad years than the good years right now, so we'll see how, how the balance goes. Dalabetta agreed. They believe the climate will stabilize and technology will help find solutions to climate-related problems. Carl says he's not wringing his hands with worry about it. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. Finally today, we remember Andrew Wolfolk. He was the longtime saxophonist for Earth, Wind and & Fire, and he grew up in Denver. The group was one of the most influential bands to come out of the 1970s. Wolfolk died earlier this week after years of battling the effects of a stroke. He was 71. We reached out to Philip Bailey, Earth, Wind & Fire's lead singer. He had this to say about his longtime friend and bandmate. Andrew was unconventional. He was always charting his own path, even in light of the great legends that came before us. He was courageous like that and lived his life the same. Andrew Wolfolk met Philip Bailey when they were both students at East High School. In 1973, Bailey invited Wolfolk to join Earth, Wind & Fire. The band brought them back to Colorado to play and record. They spent time at the famed Caribou Ranch in Netherland. There they recorded 1974's Open Our Eyes, then 1975's popular That's the Way of the World. We'll leave you today with a track from those sessions, Spasmodic Movements featuring the late Andrew Wolfolk. Thanks for joining us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.